0: On this episode of the After the Time Out podcast, in partnership with the Illinois Basketball Coaches Association, we welcome Phil Ralston, head boys basketball coach at Glenbrook South High School. We talk to Coach Ralston about breaking down a season into segments, coaching at three different high school programs with 100 wins each, and evaluating your team in the spring and fall. As always, thank you for listening to the After the Timeout podcast.
1: All right, coach. So thank you for joining us today on the show. Uh, We like to start all of our guests off with the opening tip Uh, for you. We wanted to talk about your three different head coaching stops in your career and uh, obviously very different schools. Uh, So for you, you know, how did you know when a new job kind of intrigued you? How did you know you wanted to take that next step? And what do you look for to know it's one that you'd like to have?
2: You know, that's a great question. Um, I would say, you know, I think if someone looked at my coaching resume, uh, I, I have bounced around a lot, um, but I wouldn't necessarily say that that was my intent was, you know, when I I think when I established my roots at Grant, I, I had it this vision that um, it was a growing community, um, that it would eventually, uh, that, that it was similar When I got there to like Warren in the late seventies and I was thinking, boy, growing school, fantastic, great, great chance to establish myself and, and help grow this program. And as time kind of went on, it wasn't that, um, it wasn't that I was looking to leave per se, as much as it was opportunities kind of presented themselves to me. And a lot of it had to do with the networking that I had been doing as a younger head coach. And, uh, and previous to being a head coach where I had run into a lot of people and, uh, things kind of presented themselves. And, uh, and so I would investigate it actually going to Geneva was not the first offer from Grant. Uh, I, I had, a, an offer all the way up in, uh, Minnesota that, uh, part of me has always asked myself, you know, what would have happened had I taken that opportunity to, to go back to Minnesota. Um, so, um, that's really more of what it, what had happened. And, and when I was at Geneva, obviously we had a good thing going at Geneva. We had, you know, the program was in great shape, lower levels were fantastic. Uh, our feeder program was very well established and, and kind of running the system that, that we wanted for our future success. Um, and it, it was kind of known that any, uh, any kind of, potential opportunity that would happen would have to be a really really good one and I had two of them one that I took a hard pass on once again had an offer from uh, a coach uh, that made it actually it was a very strange meeting uh, ran into a former superintendent at a football game up in Minnesota and uh, they had a head coaching job opening and after sitting and talking with this guy for an afternoon he gave my name to them and they called me up and said hey would you interview for this job and I, I I learned a long time ago don't pass up a basketball opportunity and that might be why I've moved around a little bit and uh, I've said no sometimes and uh, when I felt like it was the right opportunity that was best for me professionally and best for my family I took it.
0: So I'm going to follow up on that a little bit because uh, I think You said a big key there, best for you and best for your family. How do you go about kind of diagnosing that, right? Because sometimes that could be hard, right? You go in there and they're telling you this, this, and this, and obviously said you had some networking and and, you know people you know. But ultimately, how do you kind of know you go in there so there's not any surprises, or maybe you know they they need a coach and they want to you know kind of put a nice picture on it, but there's other things behind the scenes, you know, knowing that opportunity is the good opportunity and it be a positive
2: one. Well, you don't know. And that's, that's the problem is that usually when you're, um, I, when you're going into a new job, you're going into a situation where it is unknown. Um, uh, if, if it is known, it's usually you're following a legend or a very, very public release of a coach for probably negative reasons. And so if it's not one of those two things that jump out at you, you don't know what the situation is. And and a lot of things are usually kept pretty quiet as far as why, I mean, coaches can get burnt out and say, I'm done. Uh, There could be a quiet, you know, asking of it's time for you to step down. Um, But you really don't know. But um, each situation that I've kind of gone into has been similar in a sense. And it's not that I sought it out. It's just this is what the situation was. You know, when, when I took over at Grant, I think I was kind of groomed for the position. I was uh, Tom Maple's assistant at Grant, and he was a 25-year veteran head coach, Hall of Fame coach, um, very small school, playing primarily small schools, but occasionally playing big ones. And um, and And so he was a good mentor for me early on. To kind of say, hey, uh, this is how you win when you're at the small school. Um it, it, great education for me as a coach. Um, Geneva, I felt was a very similar situation to what I was leaving at Grant. Not necessarily known for basketball at the time, uh, kind of like the uh the the, the underling to Batavia basketball, which was well known in St. Charles. East basketball, which is also pretty well known. And so Geneva was kind of like the the, the small little brother uh, in that neighborhood. And, you know, so I, it was not well known and well established. And I, I felt like if I could do what I was doing at Grant, being the school that started out of 900 students, and we could compete with schools of three and 4,000 of uh, Zion, Benton, Stevenson, and Warren, not being able to beat them every time, but being able to beat them then maybe that would translate at Geneva. And what I went into at Geneva was almost immediate success. You know, it was, uh, we had one down year uh, and every other year we were, you know, very, very competitive in that area. And it just kept on getting better as things went on. Um, And then, uh, you know, that kind of made me feel that when Glenbrook South opened up and I had dozens of people saying, don't think you should take that job. Why would you leave Geneva? Um, I felt confident in myself that I could, I, I've done it twice now. I feel like I can help this program out and um, and and it's worked. So uh, I, I, quite honestly, I have no interest in leaving Glimmer South. Uh, I hope to be there for the remainder of my career, but do I fear doing something again? absolutely not.
1: So let's build off of that. And, and, um, you know, so you you take over one of these jobs, we can use Geneva or glumberg South as an example. So, you know, you leave one program, you come in, it's that first summer after taking that job. Um, so I'm going to kind of break this up into a couple parts. But the first part is, you know, what are the, for, for you, what are the important things to kind of establish? And what are the things that can kind of wait a little bit?
2: Yeah, uh, well, I, I think one of the first things you got to try to do is to build a, a positive culture, and that's it doesn't happen overnight. Um, you have to share a vision of where you think the pro, where the program is. Be very brutally honest of where it is, and but also establish where you want it to go. And uh, I started very early on that. It was something very concrete. We said we're gonna we're gonna win a regional. We're going to win conference, and when you take over a program that had, I think, one winning season in ten years, <clears throat> um, and that that's like asking to go to the moon, right? People are like, "You're crazy, you're insane, this is not going to happen," and uh, and it might not have happened, right? But you have to set the bar high, and and tell people this is where this is where we want to go. And uh, the the ones that want to do it will they're going to get on board that train with you. and the the ones that are going to hold you back are eventually going to kind of move to the side. and And that's really kind of what happened. But I, I think that first summer, you've got to establish what is going to be your your team identity, um, what are we going to do? You know, you have to teach an offense, you got to teach them how to play defense. Um, And and quite honestly, what we did that first summer at Glenbrook South uh, was not the defense we ended up using uh, uh, that first season. Um, You have to be realistic of what's going to beat the best team on our schedule. You know, no matter what your talent level, what is going to give you a shot of beating the best team on your schedule? And that year it was Evanston. And I knew trying to play man-to-man against Evanston was not going to get it done. We had to do something that was going to force – uh, them to do not what they did best, but what they did second or third best, which was still really good. <laughs> and, and that first season, you know, they crushed us at their place. You know, I kind of came in, I'm like, guys, we're going to get after these guys. We're going to show them the Glenbrook South is not the Glenbrook South they played last year. And they crushed us at their place. <laughs> and then they came back a month later. And we should have won the game at home. And we lost in overtime. And, you know, I'm upset, but our kids are like celebrating. It's like, well, okay, great that, except for the guy that missed the free throw that would have cost, that would have had a chance for us to win the game. But everyone was like, you know, they finally saw, okay, what coach is asking of us can be achieved. And I felt like now we got them.
1: So let's go into kind of the second part of that question. And you kind of started to allude to it, which is picking the offense that best fits, picking the defense that best fits, and then kind of establishing that that brand that you want to bring that that first year. How do you kind of go about those things?
2: Yeah, um, you know, I've played around with lots of different offenses. And I, I'd like to believe that what I do is a hybrid of a lot of things that I like. And I feel like I it's allowed me to, especially later in my career, to pick and choose uh, sets that I think really work with the talent that I've got. Um, I know there's certain guys that probably scout me and and my teams and have said, "Well, this is a play they run, and that's the play they run." And but I think that it, the portfolio is so large that if you're going to try to figure out what we're doing, um, good luck. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I've, I've feel like, um, you know, when I started out as a head coach, uh, we ran the Auburn shuffle. I am not kidding. And we were probably the only school in the state of Illinois that ran the Auburn shuffle. And, uh, it was the offense that was kind of handed off to me at Grant. It was, this is what you run. And, um, and my assistant, my first assistant at Grant, uh, Fritz Keslowski, he was a 40 year veteran. Uh, you know, I young head coach with the, a much older veteran, retired teacher, great coach, uh, who would have been a great head coach himself. Um, you know, I, I kind of learned after my first season, I needed to turn something over to my assistant and Fritz was brilliant on offense. And he made that Auburn shuffle run so awesome that we went from eight wins our first season to 20 wins, our second season, it was like an amazing turnaround, um, and so I, I ran that for uh, for a few years, and then as time went on, and Fritz was no longer my assistant, and I had other assistants that kind of came up. I kind of um, branched out in in learning. Right, I, I try to figure out, okay, well, what's going to be the best offense for our program because we're not gonna. I can't go back to my old philosophy of running straight motion. Um, like, like we did at Deerfield when I was an assistant under Steve Pappas, um, and can't run straight, the, the kind of motion, the college motion that, that we ran at Northwestern when I was working for a bird song, what, what's going to work best for our kids. And it, it happened that I, I, you know, liked to before the season go to, um, you know, in the summer, I like to go to college camps. Uh, That's what I, that's where I kind of got my start in coaching. Um, And I I ended up meeting a guy named Greg Gard, who was an assistant uh, for Bo Ryan. And I remember, I still remember to this day, sitting at the breakfast table at a summer camp with him. And we were just talking basketball. And he asked me, well, what do you run? And he goes, well, that sounds very similar to kind of what we do here. Would you like to learn more about it? And I was like, Sure. So he indoctrinated me on the swing offense, which is very similar to flex and but different in many different ways. And it, it was like a light bulb went off in my head. I'm like, this is just this is for us. This is this is perfect. This is what we need. And ever since um, at, at some level, that's kind of our base level of our offense is the swing. And then ultimately, you know, after you run it for, you know, three or four seasons and that's all you do. Uh, you run that as a continuity offense. Well, people gimmick you. They they get. Uh, they're going to try to take you out of it. They're going to make you do other things, and that's where um, I had to learn to be a little bit more clever. So or hide it or disguise it. So you know, I took some Princeton concepts and tried to incorporate them so teams couldn't you know constantly gimmick switches uh, with switches and. I would come up with different type of entries that I saw other teams do. And then ultimately, um, you know, we got to a certain point at Geneva where, you know, we had a, a really good basketball player, uh, Nate Navigato, uh, And we had to get him to touch the ball every time on, off- when we had an offensive possession and teams would try to gimmick us. So we would run pro sets and college sets that would ultimately have, Three, four, five different options. All of them, him touching the ball at some point in those options, but giving other kids chances to get easy scores out of it. If teams try to take that away from us, and so it's it's kind of snowballed into we we were on a set, and if the set doesn't work, at some point it's going to flow into swing. And what's amazing is that you know as as seasons have gone on, teams might take us out of a set. And then we end up scoring out of swing, out of off of a backside cut, and uh, teams are like, "Well, how did that happen?" It's well, it's because our kids have been indoctrinated into how we run our offense, and it, it's very layered and it's it's complex. If you're walking into it day one, but if the kids have been indoctrinated, at, you know at a base level running swing and then running different sets, um, it, it it's worked.
0: All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna branch off here. I got an interesting follow-up on that. Um, so obviously, your your you just talked about tiering it at different levels, right? Your base level and things like that. You know, how do you go about kind of putting that together, right, for for each level, even down to maybe your youth levels, right? Because obviously, yep. swings a little bit different than what most people run. A lot of people run motion, you know, right. some kind of pick and roll, whatever. So when you're looking at kind of breaking it down all the way down to your younger levels, how do you go about taking those pieces and figuring out, you know, at a sophomore level, we should be kind of here, right? We should have these things. And then, you know, that way.
2: Yeah, uh, it, that's, a, that's a great question. It's It's been, I you know, when, when we first put in the swing, I wanted it at every level. And I even wanted our feeder level to run it. And I was looking for a junior highs to run it. And what I came to realize is that, you know, I only had a certain amount of say I had say over my program, very difficult to have say over a feeder program Uh, and even more difficult when you're dealing with junior high coaches. So the ones that were receptive to it, did it. Uh, The ones that weren't wouldn't. Um, And so the only thing I could really worry about is could we teach it in the summer at our summer camps? Could we uh, to the, to the youth and then our freshmen just had to get those kids to understand all the intricacies of running swing. And, and so ultimately what I did is I tried to develop some very simple rules of running offense. Right. So, you know, kids will say, or I, I'd say the people that don't like swing, right. Would say, well, you're not giving kids enough freedom, right. You're not giving them any freedom. And, and so we w- what we would do is we'd say, well, we're going to give you freedom. Uh, ultimately, you know, we we want you to try to score layups and we want you to try to score wide open threes. Those are going to be the goals. Of, so if anyone looks at our shot charts through the levels, they're going to say, well, wow, everything's concentrated in the lane and everything's concentrated on the three, three point line. And for me, that's kind of like if I was to just look at a shot chart of any of our levels, if I see it uh, and it looks like that, I'm like, OK, we're something is going right. Maybe not all aspects of it, but the simple rules of we want you to shoot wide open threes and we want you to shoot on passes going into the post. Um, and the fact that we would post anybody, post your point guard, point, uh, post your your best wing. Um, that's not something that's being taught much this these days. Right. And so teams really struggle when they're defending team with the things they don't see very often. Right. And um so that's the base level for us. We want that established with our freshmen. We want them to know all the different entries to getting into swing. We want them to understand the ball side triangle. We want them to understand the, the high spacing where there are four guys free throw line or above, uh, which makes it very difficult to pressure teams that are running it. We want them to understand the importance of screening. We want them to understand the importance of making good passes. You know, so we're all emphasizing good basketball. Right. Um, and then when you incorporate things like boomerang passes and ball screen actions out of it, it, it's a lot easier to teach that because you've already established good spacing and good principles in regards to screening and cutting without the ball. And I, I, I the other simple rule we add there is, you know, any time kids don't need to look for approval or, or from the bench of did I do this right? One man to beat. Anytime we got just one guy between me and the basket, I can drive. And if you can establish that with the kids, they understand, okay, well, this is now I know when I should drive to the basket. When it becomes one on two, you got to stop it, reverse dribble. You got to find the opening or hammer play it or whatever it is to get that ball back out to the guy that's not being guarded. And if you can establish and get the kids really to buy in that what we're trying to do is not taking tough contest contested shots and trying to find easier shots that are going to make our shooting percentages go up and give us a greater chance to win then then you're gonna be pretty good
0: all right so we're gonna kind of go back to part of the the initial question but say you you know you 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 decide hey i'm gonna switch job take this over the my 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 first year and you're you're looking in your first year uh so it's kind of you got to figure out your players right you got to figure out your program um you know when you're in those situations right especially coming from you know like say Geneva where you and then you went to GBS um you know what are you looking to learn in that that kind of first year um maybe basketball wise but also off the court wise and, and and school wise and and program wise and culture wise
2: yeah um, well, sometimes you don't know what the culture is before you go in there. Um, you know, when I went into Geneva, Geneva was, had, had their football program was rolling. I mean, it was great, and and we were sharing athletes. And and I've really, um, I would say that at GBS we don't share as many athletes between football and basketball as I had at other programs I've been at. And um, and I, I kind of get it because we're getting kids that are now. Being hyper focused on a sport, which I think is a bad idea, um, uh, and in rare cases, it's it, I understand it, but for most kids, to be a multiple sport athlete is is, is, is I think beneficial to you. Um, but at, at Geneva, we we it was a it was kind of a nightmare situation. Football program went to the state championship game, and there were eight kids that we were expecting were going to make the basketball team. And so I had a completely postponed tryouts for those kids until after our Thanksgiving tournament. And what made it worse is I went into that Thanksgiving tournament with five kids and we had to bring up two sophomores, uh, to just make sure that we had some bench depth and, uh, the surprising part, it might be one of the most amazing things <laughs> I've ever been a part of. We won the whole thing. Uh, we won the tournament. Um, and we beat some really, really good teams. Um, to, to win that tournament that was uh, down at Oswego. That was the uh, uh, hoops for healing tournament. And so what what a great way to start your career at, at a new school is to win it, win that Thanksgiving tournament. But uh, that previous summer, it, I had to identify what were our strengths and what were our weaknesses. I had to identify what's going to be the offense going to work best for us. What's going to be, what's not going to work for us. What, what type of defense can we run with the group that we've got? that's gonna make us competitive, right? And when you're going into a program and you're looking at a program that it wasn't like winning championships before, it hadn't. It wasn't like I was walking into a school that just won 20 games, won conference, won a regional. And you're trying to say, this is where we wanna get to. Um, you, you have to really identify early Who are the guys that you can have as scorers? Who are the guys that can get the ball from point A to point B to get you in your offense? Who are guys that you can identify that are going to really attack defensively and buy in to playing great team defense? And what I found is a group of kids that were just hungry for success. And some of those kids were hungry for success because they were part of a successful football program. Uh, But the other part of it is the kids that weren't, they wanted to prove that they were great competitors too, and even though if they weren't competing in ba- in football, they wanted to show that we could do in basketball what the football team was doing. And so, it it made things a lot easier for me to get that early success. You know, twenty one wins that first year at Geneva. I, I still think back on that. We won the Thanksgiving tournament. Uh, we we won DeKalb's Holiday Tournament uh, that year, which was really competitive. We beat a great. Uh, Chicago vocational school beat a really good Rockford Jefferson school. Uh, it, it, I, I think back on them, like that was like, I wish I could bottle that magic every year because it does, it, it came together so quickly in some ways. Um, uh, it, it was, but it was, it had a lot to do with the situation at, at GBS. It, it was harder. It, it was that first season was a grind. It was, uh, the kids wanted to believe what I was asking was going to happen. But I watched film, uh, and and I do this occasionally to remind myself, I like to watch film of of years where maybe we weren't doing so well, right? And that first Thanksgiving tournament with GBS, uh, we we couldn't run basic swing. It was a struggle. And to watch the frustration that the kids were having when they weren't competing against themselves to go up against really good teams, that could pressure them and take them out of what they're doing. Um, it reminds me of, okay, you know, not not always are things going to go well, and how do you get? How are you going to fix that?
0: So that's kind of a perfect transition to my next question. Then, um, you know, building out that long-term plan, uh, where where you're at. Obviously, you know, a lot of times it takes the, the first year to really know, okay. I have this idea coming in, but you go into it, okay, we can do this, or maybe we got to tweak it a little bit. So no. how do you, uh, maybe it's a five-year plan. Uh, I don't know, I kind of feel like nowadays, maybe it's coming down to a three-year plan at some schools, right, at some programs, because the landscape changes a little bit. No. But how do you go and like build that long-term plan after you kind of initially gather your information on Okay, this is the kind of kids we have. this is the players we have. maybe some of the players come in. how do you how do you build that plan?
2: yeah i I don't know if I, I would say that I've got like one of those five year plans. It, I think it's I'm looking at what is it's almost like a one year plan, right?'m um, I am trying to look long long down the road, have that longer vision. Um, but I, I try not to look too far ahead because I feel like there's you there's nothing that's promised you, right? The 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 best laid plans just never seem to work themselves out, right? Um, and so I, I really try to look at what's gonna what's gonna really make us be as competitive as we possibly can this next year. So this this coming year's team is not gonna be last year's team. There might be a lot of things we do that's similar. Um, it's not gonna be a wholesale change, but we're going to try to put our guys to play to their strengths and not to their weaknesses so um you know at, at this point uh we're going to train and polish the guys the uh, uh, the things that they do well not the things that they don't do well um so that's kind of how i've operated and i've always felt like um every year you're going to get you know one or two surprises uh, from kids that just kind of seem to come out of nowhere and then you're gonna get kind of what you hope and you expect from the 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 core group that you're you're hoping are gonna what they can achieve. So kind of want to
1: now go into a little bit of off-season evaluation and um, you know so during the spring and the fall it's obviously a little bit different than the summer in that we can kind of tweak things and try things with our kids. But during the spring and the fall, when you're evaluating your team for the next year, what are some things that you use to maybe evaluate yourselves? And then how do you match your team to that evaluation for the next year? And then in that same evaluation period, how do you use your assistant coaches?
2: You know, that's, that's a fantastic question. I, I I think the one of the best things that I learned, you know, when I was a young head coach, I was very sensitive to criticism, right? I, I was, I wanted to hear the praise, but I wasn't willing to take the criticism. And uh, I learned that um, in postseason evals that I couldn't, it was not fair of me as a head coach to evaluate my players and expect from them to make changes in their game from their, Sophomore to junior or junior to senior year, if I wasn't willing to take the same criticism of what I needed to do better, so you know, one of the things that I and and year in year out, I I can't say that I I'm always great at this, but I'm always receptive to this. Is that you know I want my players to give me feedback. What did I do well? What did the staff do well? Um, what did we not do well? And what could we do better? And I feel like if you have that that open openness with your players um it often pays you back right you've you've gained some level of trust in that and in that relationship that you're building with your with your team with your athletes because they you know i'm a fallible human being right and i i joke with the kids that i i I might be godlike but i'm not god right um but uh all kidding aside you know if they understand that you know i'm not perfect Um, I'm just giving you the best opportunity I can to to be your coach Um, but I'm trying to do better I'm trying to be a better person Um, I think more often than not the the really good kids get it appreciate it and they want to try to emulate that right they're like oh wait coach isn't saying he's always right Um, he wants to be better too you know I need to do the same thing and and I but more importantly builds that relationship that is just so consequential to um, the success of a program and, and creating a positive culture in the program.
0: All right. So we're going to go a little uh, halftime break here, maybe a little bit more basketball um, segment called halftime adjustments. Yeah. Just, just in general here, um, halftime buzzer buzzes, you're getting, you know, your players run off, go to the locker room, wherever. Um, First, like first thing, like what are you talking with your coaches about? Is there certain stats you're looking at? Is there a certain, you know, uh, part of your system you're looking at trying to get? Um, and then when you go in, how are you disseminating that information to your players? Whether it's through your assistants, maybe different groups as a whole, um, just kind of the halftime process that you guys go through to make those adjustments needed to have a successful second half.
2: Yeah. uh, Well, the first thing I, I want to do is to counsel with the, you know, whether we're up or down counsel with my, uh, my assistants and kind of get their feedback. Um, You know, I would like us to be more analytic based on it. Um, You know, we're trying to look at certain tendencies that we're certain that we're seeing, you know, what's, what have we done? That's been going well. What are things that we could be doing better? Um, You know, it, but, Know I kind of go to my gut more often than not when I'm talking to the team when we get in there. It's you know, where where do I feel like the momentum is is going? You know, if we had a lead and I felt like a team is pushing us at the end, okay, we we gotta really we gotta win the third quarter, right? And kind of the the kids probably think it's a broken record because I say it almost all the time. Win the first four minutes of the third quarter, right? We're gonna win the first third uh, four minutes. If we can do that, we're gonna be good shape. Um Or if I feel like, you know, a certain player hasn't touched the ball enough, it's okay, we've got to run these sets to try to get more touches. Um, You know, last year, if Martinelli um, wasn't touching the ball enough, he's got to get touches. And it wasn't my way of saying um, he's got to shoot. It was more of saying, you know, our best players have to get touches on the ball. Or, you know, last year, if Cooper Nord had zero points at, at half, you know, part of us are like, oh boy, what's going to happen in the second half? Is he going to just start shooting everything that's a bad shot? It's reminding them, okay, we want to make sure that we're taking uncontested shots. We want to make sure that we are creating situations where they've got to guard two, they got to put two to guard the ball to get a guy open. It's setting those kinds of reminders of um, understanding where you are at that halftime and what's going to keep you on that path of success when you get into that that third quarter but I, i've really been in that mindset that no matter how the first half went you've got to really you know get the perspective locked in of how you come out your approach into that third quarter and you know i, I would argue and it's a great criticism of me i've had people say uh man you guys look terrible coming out in that first quarter and you know why can't you do in the first quarter what you do in the third quarter? Right. And um, I don't know, maybe that's something I got to do better. Right.
0: So I want to build on that a little bit. So you said, you know, looking at what you're doing well in the, and maybe not so in the first half um, you know, do you have your, your assistants maybe looking at a certain aspect or are you guys more overall picture? You know what I mean? Like it's, it's hard as a coach, right. You're calling out a set, you're looking at this. You can't see everything, right? You think you can, but it's, it's not possible. So, yeah. how do you use your assistants to kind of help you? Hey, maybe we need, we're doing this really well, but you might not see that.
2: So, I, I kind of give my um, my assistant Zach Walker. Right now is my lead assistant, and you know I've kind of put him in charge of defense. So he's his his role is to kind of pay attention to the defensive aspects that he's seeing and to kind of point out, you know. How are they attacking us? What can we do to stop them? make any adjustments that we need to do um, on a certain player. like if they've had a player that went off and scored 10, 15 points in the first half, okay, maybe we need to change how we're defending that. Um, you know, if it's if it's specials, we didn't score off off of our off of our specials, okay, let's focus in on that. you know, we need to make sure that we're being, you know aggressive at the rim at trying to get high, higher percent shots um so there might be little tweaks like that you know i always make sure before i head into the locker room uh to look at our foul situations look at their foul situations i'm looking at who's got the hot hand for them and you know who's been doing well for us and and but really when it comes down to it it's just reminders of you know how it how do we win you know what types of shots are we taking are we sticking to the script um and when we're not okay let's go back to our fundamentals let's go back to our base and 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 focus in that way
0: so i want to go into like i guess bigger picture coaching um you've had tremendous success everywhere you've been 100 plus wins um, at all your stops but as you look at kind of the coaching landscape uh and john and i have talked about this like over the spring and the summer especially this year like almost a i don't know if the record number but Alarming number of coaches leaving the profession and and, and deciding to do something else um, or or maybe being asked to, to do something else. Right. So how do we how do we go about um, having good quality coaches, but being in the being coaching profession for the long the long run? Right. Um, and maybe why do you feel some of these coaches are leaving?
2: Yeah, I well. I, I'm first of all. I'm of the mindset that the uh, the pressure of winning is real. It, it is, and um, if if you haven't had success for a prolonged period of time, you must have a very special community and relationship with your administration to, to survive that. Because at a certain point, someone's going to ask you to step down. Um, uh, and even when you win, right? Even when you win, there's still that pressure to continue to win. Um, and and so I've I know it sounds counterintuitive, but I've really tried to not focus as much on winning. I mean, we're trying to win every game, right? But I'm trying to focus on a bigger pictures, right? I'm trying to focus on maintaining a positive culture with our team. And I, I maintain on trying to teach the game of basketball and my philosophy and with my assistance, as best I can and and figuring out that winning will be a part of that process if we're doing things the right way. You know, we're not gonna win every game, um, but if we kind of can focus on certain aspects of our season and and that the winning will take care of itself. But uh, I, I think it's alarming, right? I think COVID, um, coaching during COVID uh, killed the joy, of being a coach, right? Because we had all these mandates of what we had to do with the mask wearing and, and the restrictions on what we could do and what we couldn't do with athletes. Uh, and I think that frustration has built. I think the other aspect of it is I think, um, I'm not trying to pick on younger coaches because I think there are ones that are grinders out there, but there are not a lot of guys that I know that are, learn-it-alls anymore and what i mean by that is people are willing to just go to as many sources as they possibly can to try to find out different ways of being successful uh of learning right and there's many things that i've learned through the years that i probably will never in- implement into the game of basketball um, for myself but i know it right and i think with social media Uh, the ability to find stuff on YouTube. Those are great resources. And I I learned from those places too, but there's something different than when you go to a basketball clinic, when you go to a, when you work a college basketball camp and you meet coaches from other places Um, when you take your team to a team camp and you compete against teams from other States Um, uh, when you go to coaches clinics, I mean, sadly the the Nike the old Nike clinic, the old USA basketball clinics, those don't exist anymore. And I felt like, you know, yes, some of those clinicians um, were great and informative. Um, and there are other times where it was a waste of an hour and a half. Um, but I, I really feel like we don't have a generation of coaches that are continuing to do that. And my fear is, is that I think that some people think that being able to recruit a kid to your school that's really talented is good coaching, right? And I I think that's what we're seeing right now is you got these kids that are bouncing around between schools and maybe it's through their AAU connections. Maybe it's because of some skills trainer connection. You know, um, you got these kids bouncing around and what's the focus here? Is it about teaching kids how to be resilient when things aren't going their way? Is it about teaching them how to play within a team concept? Um, I, I don't think I, my fear is I think that there's too many people that might think that good coaching is, well, I just brought in the best athlete that's in the state to my team. And that's not really what it is. So let's
1: kind of build on that a little bit and let's, uh, you know, you and I were talking about, uh, you know, over the next 10 years, a little bit when we were texting off the air, but, you know, what, what do you think the game will look like five years from now, whether it's new rule changes or shot clock implementation or more kids transferring or more kids, uh, coaches coming and going. I mean, we had a coaching situation in the state where a coach was somewhere and was there for a few months and then left. Um, like Todd said, we, I mean, there was 30 plus coaching openings this, this off season between girls and boys. So where do you think that the game's going to go in the next five years?
2: You know, that, that's a great question. I don't know. I, I'll be honest with you. I, I I'm not saying that you have to hire, uh, an in-school teacher to be your, head coach to run a good program. I don't think that that necessarily has to be the case, but you know, when you, that used to be what it was, right? Like I knew that when I made that transfer from going to college to high school, it was going to require me to be a teacher. I was going to have to get an education degree uh, or certificate, need to be certified to teach. And I was going to have to work my way up. Uh, I was naive enough as a really, really young Uh, coach coming out of college to to the teaching profession I thought uh, it's kind of a funny story when I think about it you know I was so naive the Stevenson job opened up you know Pat Ambrose gets it um, which well deserved Um, he's a phenomenal coach what a great leader he is for them Uh, but I had it in my head when that job opened up I was like oh I'm gonna get that job that'll be a piece of cake you know here I got offers to to be an assistant at Central uh, Michigan and Akron that were in the works, and I thought, well, I can have those jobs if I want them. Uh, but you know, it'll be a piece of cake to get a head high school job, and I couldn't even get an interview. <laughs> so you know, it used to be that you had to be a teacher, uh, especially at the public schools. You had to be a teacher uh, to to just be entertained. You had to be able to teach in the classroom. be a coach. Um, I I think that's becoming less and less so. And part of it is uh, of the teaching profession. You got some people that don't want to coach um, that are teachers and they've got to fill these jobs to to get people uh, to teach in the classroom. And um, so now you got school districts that are looking outside that area to whether it's they're looking for assistance And, you know, for myself, we've got two assistant coaches in our program that are not teachers in our building. Um, I think that's that didn't happen 20 years ago. Right. Um, And so I I think that you can be outside the school district uh, and or whatever school it is that you're coaching and, and be successful. But I think by and large, when your only resume is is only that. Um, you've worked for an AAU program or uh, that you've done skills training. I'm not saying that those people can't be really good head coaches, but the job of being a head coach is very different than teaching some aspect of the game. It it involves so much more than that. Uh, You're the PR guy. You're developing the feeder program. You're setting schedules. Um, There's so many components of being a head coach that don't involve you talking to a kid one-on-one on how they can improve their game, right? And it's very different uh, idea of how do you improve one kid's skill sets to how do you get them to play with other kids and play competitively to win as an organization, right? Um, how do you uh, develop a philosophy so that all your levels are going to be successful and or build kids to come up to your level later? There, There's so many aspects of the game that, Um, that even at coaching clinics, you, they're not taught that should be taught. How can you be, how can you successfully run a basketball program? Um, and it's something that I had to kind of learn on my own, right? There was no college course for me to take. Um, it, it took a lot of networking, um, a lot of allowing people to, uh, be mentors to me to learn how to best do this. Right. Um, but my fear is that, the, the longevity you get coaches. I think part of our problem is that there's a lot of coaches, especially younger coaches, um, that get into it, find out that the job is very different than what they thought they signed up for and they get out. And I think, uh, or they get families and life gets too busy and they have, they feel like they have to make a choice of, you know, what's, and they choose their family, which is probably the right choice to make. Um, but I think the other part component of this, we've had a lot of older coaches that are that have just struggled for the last few years because of COVID. And they've just decided, you know what, this is a really good time for me to stop.
1: So, coach, you brought up a, a great point. Um, this was a phenomenal answer that I hope our listeners do listen to. So I kind of want to build off that a little bit about, you know, how do we teach the young coaches? Because every time I talk to a coach that's just taking over. Um, you know, and they'll say like, there's so many things that went into this, that I had no idea, you know, you and I uh, off the air had joked about our, both of our first years when, you know, we, we looked around and we were like, wow, there is a whole lot more of ordering uniforms and ordering practice jerseys and making the schedule and making sure there's enough players to play in the summer league game and, um, and doing a parent meeting and all these things. How do we how do we all jokes aside, not a college course, but how do we develop something to teach young coaches? These are the things that go into being a head coach that are way outside of Friday night's game.
2: Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's evolved, but I developed kind of like a flow chart of responsibilities and, you know, early on as a head coach, I felt like I had to do everything. Like I had to Literally do everything, and not allow my assistants to be good assistants. And I, I it's evolved, and I've gotten better. Um, I do feel like, to a certain level, I'm kind of a control freak. I want things to be the way they are. Um, I want, you know, the vision that I have to end up where I think it should be. But I've really relaxed and allowed my assistants. I, it's it's more of Understanding that, you know, when I was an assistant, I wanted to be able to have a say. Like I like when I was at Northwestern, my job was to take notes about certain aspects of the game and keep your mouth shut. And when there was something to share, I would hand a handwritten note to one of the assistants. And sometimes he would crumple it up, and other times he'd look at it, and then he would be the person to say it to the head coach. And so uh, you know, talk about you know, taking away your hubris right there is, is that you, you, you understand <laughs> that you're really this little. And, and so, you know, I feel like um, I've allowed guys that I, that I see as, as having the ability to take something off my plate and trusting them implicitly that they're going to, through conversations we've had, do what I would want them to do and to give them the freedom to say, This is yours. You're in charge of it. Um, that when we have to have a tough conversation of, Hey, why is this not the way it is? Um, they can at least say, Well, you get, you trusted me to be able to do this. And they will, their level of effort goes up. Right. And um, I, but it's really been, I want them to be learned at all is like me. That's the other part of it, right? And not all of my assistants have done that. In um, some very rare occasions, I've had to say he's not performing what I thought we need to do. And I've had to have the tough conversation with a couple of assistants say, I, I don't think you can coach with us this next year, right? But um, some years I do better at this, others I don't. I I try to put out a drill book that is more or less anything that I felt like I would want to see my assistants run in a practice. And, um, and then we talk about teaching how we want to run offense and teaching how we want to run our defense. And it's as simple as that. It's, it's setting the expectations. And then if I have coaches that don't understand what we're doing. It's trying to get them to, um, to teach them. Right. Um, Last year I had to teach a, a two new assistant coaches, how we run swing and, how do we layer that to run sets that flow into swing and just show them it? Right. But, um, but the other aspect of it, I ask of my assistants, I want them to be learn-it-alls too.
0: So, uh, I, I want to go into kind of like your, your team makeups, right? When, when you kind of know you're, you have, you have, a, you have a team and they kind of get it. You obviously made some deep runs down state. um, and you, you get to that January, February time. What are some signs to you? Because um, everybody wants to play at their highest level going into the playoffs, right? That's kind of the, the ultimate goal. Sometimes in the, the year, you're figuring things out. you got new players. Um, so what, what are the signs for you that your team's playing at a high level and kind of peaking at the right time? And then at those points, how much of that is kind of driven by your, your, your players, right? You kind of know... Okay, we got it here, and now the the kids are really kind of run it, running running their, their own thing, and got that good connection to make a deep run.
2: Well, you know, I first of all, I think you, you taper your season, right? You're you're hoping, you know, w- usually when we hit middle of January, um, you have a good sense of where you're at in regards to the sectional layout. You're you're looking at what's still ahead. And what's going to help best prepare you to get into that state tournament and do well. And you know, some of it, uh, I've I've done this a long enough time that some of it's luck and some of it's, you know, bad luck. <laughs> um, but I, I feel like if you can taper it uh the season where maybe you're not you're you're not going harder, you're going smarter. Um, and this is the this is something else you learn as as a as a more veteran head coach, you know. I felt that my practices early in my career had to be as hard, if not harder at the end of the season as they were at the beginning of the season. And that was so counterintuitive. Uh, It was actually coaching another sport that that I worked with a guy who would make our, I I coached cross country. I know that's hard to believe, but I coached cross country and this coach was like, uh, he's like uh, running these, practices at the end of the season where kids are hardly doing anything they were riding doing spin and bikes and and uh he would do some short intervals for a half hour 45 minutes and he cut them loose and I'd be like coach what are you doing yeah you gotta get ready for for you know the conference meeting for for regionals these guys aren't going to be ready he's like he's like if if i burn them out now he's like they're going to get to those meets and they might have the high adrenaline, but they're not going to do as 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 well. You got to taper things off, and that's really when it clicked with me that what I was doing with my basketball teams at Grant was I was burning those kids out when we got to the got to those regional meets, or regional, and as badly as they would might want it, their bodies just couldn't take it, right? And so it's a four month season; it's a long season. So I, I learned that you have to taper things off and focus on you know, really on what's the toughest team on your schedule. How can you best prepare to be as competitive as you can in that game? And then treat that as a vision for a regional final. Like I'll say at the end of the game, guys, this is a regional final game. Are you ready to win a regional? If you are, you have to win this game. This is what we have to do. And if we didn't come on the losing end, okay, this is where we came short this is what we got to focus on to get ready to be able to win a regional. So make everything a learning experience for the kids and put them in the best places so that they can visualize their own success.
0: All right, Coach, we want to transition to our last two segments here. First one's 30 second timeout. um, Your chance to talk about anything you want to talk about. doesn't have to be basketball, something you think is important. Whatever it may be, you can, you can promote your program a little bit. Um, You know, you want to have a discussion with us, whatever, whatever it may be. It's your very loose 30 second timeout. We're not gonna yell at you. Second horn, first horn, and get out of you know get out of my huddle here. I got more things to talk about. Um, it's all it's all you for next 30 seconds or however long you want, really.
2: Sure, uh, I, I would say I'm gonna bring up high school gyms. I, I think um, you know I, one of the things that makes me feel so blessed to be the head coach at Glenbrook South is every day I get to have practice in the Titan Dome. It is such a cool place. Um, uh, it, it's a place that uh, I've known since I was in high school. Uh, I went to Glenbrook North, ironically, uh, which is strange that a Glenbrook North grad is, is coaching at Glenbrook South. Um, I don't know if many people know that, but I, anyhow. Uh, so I, I, I've been fascinated with high school gyms, and uh, I couldn't tell you when when it started. Um, but I've always felt like there are places around the state. They're just so unique, um, and make the game more interesting. And on Friday nights, when it's a packed gym, what, what kind of environments they create for, for communities. Um, so, you know, like Waukegan, and to me as a young coach, young assistant at Deerfield and just not understanding and fully appreciating the environment I thought every game was like that. Right. And it's not. Um, so I, I've been fascinated. So I, I've kind of always tried to get games at different places. Like this year we're going to Jacksonville. Um, and just what I like about it is it I I know it's part of it's my own selfish reasons of of interest, but the other part of it is I think it's good for our kids to get out of our area and to check out just how special the game of high school basketball is in other parts of our state. And to, to look at the unique aspects of these gyms. They're not just these, you know, newer cookie cutter, uh, gyms with, with bleachers, right. Uh, they're functional, but maybe a little bit less interesting. So, you know, East Aurora, I think is, is an awesome gym. Love East Aurora. And I've had several of my teams go down to Quincy and boy, if you haven't experienced a Quincy varsity basketball game, you're missing something. Um, and I think those types of experiences really have enriched uh, like I have kids that still talk to me about what was it like to have that the the blue devil mascot rush out with a flaming pitchfork shaking it in his in your face as they're running right past you. They still think that's the coolest thing ever. and we lost we lost the game, right? but they they go back and they think of that experience as, as one of their bet, better memories. um I've had I've played in Moline. Um, so I, I've, I've really tried to think of different places around the state and, you know, whether I go to visit by myself or whether I've been able to take my teams there, I've always tried to, to reach out and there, there's still several places I would like to go last year. We, we were told we couldn't because of COVID, we had scheduled a game with a team from Indiana to go play at the Hoosier gym, which is still, I'm hoping at some point we can make that happen. Um maybe in a, with the future team.
1: So as we get into our last segment, uh, we call this Quick Hitters. Um, this is Todd and my chance to just have uh, some fun with the guests and just ask them some some of the times off the wall questions. Um, so the first one we wanna get into is, obviously you're an English teacher, so your favorite novel or book to teach?
2: Um, Sadly, I don't teach anymore, but the Odyssey was, is one that I taught for almost twenty years, and you know, I I I loved it. I think it's so emblematic of of kids, right? You know, they're in high school, they're going, they are they whether they realize it or not, they're going on a journey, just like it, Odysseus. Some bad things are going to happen in their lives, some good things are going to happen in their lives, and ultimately they can come to the end where they can learn that they are part of all who whom they have met, right? And I really try to fo- focus in on that, right? That that life is made up of that. what makes life so worth living. And so enriching is the ability to connect with others. And that's what I think that novel teaches. Uh, it, it's so, um, for me, fun to teach, right? It, it has some adventures, so it draws in kids uh, to it. But when you look at those, deep lessons that they, that, that Odysseus learns throughout his travels. Um, And then you kind of connect it guys, you're going off into the big wide world. When you leave high school, this you are Odysseus and, you know, be open to enriching your lives. Even when bad things happen, bad things can lead to new opportunities. Um, I think it's so valuable to teach that. But uh, the other one that I currently teach is to kill a mockingbird. And Um, that's a book that I tell the kids, I read it three times, um, uh, before really appreciating it. It, it, I read it, um, when I was far too young to really understand what it was about, uh, at a very surface level, I understood was about, I think I read it in sixth grade, um, could not appreciate it at that point. I did read it again in high school and in high school just didn't, I didn't connect with it, um. And I, and I understand some kids don't maybe connect with it. Uh, but I did read it in college. And again, and the third time, it really kind of hit me. It hit me. I was like, this is so impactful. And the way I look at it right now, um, you know, we are living in an environment that is very divided right now. It, it is so much what is happening in that novel is still happening today. So can we learn from this? Yes, absolutely. We can. Uh, I feel like more people need to be open to, um, you know, trying to, we, we need more addicts in the world, right? We need more Atticus Finches in the world. We need people to be able to stand up, uh, on the moral high ground and, and to say, this isn't right. Uh, we need to treat people better. We need to treat people as human beings and treat others as we wish to be treated. Um, And that, that connection of which I truly have in all aspects of my life, trying to be a good teammate to everyone in my life, um, treat others, uh, better than you wish to be treated is maybe what we need to have more of, uh, in our, in our society today.
0: All right, John, now we get into the real deep diving questions. That's right. Tremendous answer coach, but we're getting to the real deep diving questions with these next two traditional or boneless wings.
2: Uh, if it was my son, it's gonna be boneless. For me, it's traditional. Uh, I'm a big buffalo wing fan, probably more than I should be. Uh, <laughs> I'm going traditional.
1: All right. All right. So now, even even tougher now. Ketchup on a hot dog, yes or no?
2: It, you know what? Someone would say uh, it's probably uh, the the small Minnesotan in me. Yes, ketchup on a hot dog. Okay. I, I'll I'll go, I'll go with the mustard. I'm fine with mustard on my hot on my hot dog. I do get a little irritated when they won't put ketchup on it as well. <laughs> Ketchup, mustard, pickle, tomato, sport peppers. I'm good. There we go. Uh, your favorite athlete growing up as a kid? Jeez, this is so hard. I, it, You know, someone's going to expect me to put down a basketball player. Um, I don't know if I can narrow down favorite. You know, on the baseball side, Ryan Sandberg was, right. was good for me. Um, you know, I was probably I was I was definitely a Cubs fan from watching WGN in the summers as a youth. I was a big baseball card collector. Steve Garvey would have been one of my heroes too because I I thought he was pretty awesome. Um, but uh, on the basketball side, I got to see and and not really even truly appreciate Pete Maravich late in his career and um, Larry Bird, obviously Michael Jordan, obviously would be big on my list but i i'm gonna go out and say favorite athlete adrian dantley okay
1: Okay. all right all right this is another tough one red or green grapes
2: red absolutely red yep yep especially they're straight out of the fridge
1: there we go uh
0: favorite college basketball offense to watch maybe something you're looking at right now something you've seen recently something in, in the past, obviously, you talked about swimming and some of your prints and stuff, but something you're kind of interested in right now?
2: That's such a good question. Um, geez, um,
0: could even be just a simple concept that you've true, seen. yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: I, right now, we're looking at so much.
0: <laughs> oh, uh,
2: you know, I, I, I find what Matt Painter has been doing at Purdue. Mm-hmm. Just absolute I, this guy is just running clinics. He is such a brilliant offensive mind. Um, he shows you what you need to do with your bigs. He shows you what you need to do with your with your guards. He runs such complex little nuances to his offenses that that intrigue me so immensely. Um, he's definitely one of the coaches the last three years I've been studying most, just because and they're so fun to watch. Right. I'm not a big Purdue. I'm a Big Ten snob and I'll support all the Big Ten schools. But um, Purdue's not one of the teams that I would say is my team. But I'm fascinated with what he does year in and year out. Um, So right now, that's kind of my team to kind of pay attention to.
0: If only you could find bigs consistently, like,
2: Matt well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's
0: got a six, you got a seven, six guy, He's got a seven foot guy.
2: Well, you know, my Geneva team, we had my team that went down state. We, we did have nine guys that were six, four to six, 10 on that team. Uh, that, that was great year All
1: right. Last one, maybe an another high school program uh that's out there you know in illinois could could be in another state to be quite honest but maybe another high school program out there that you've long been a fan of or or learned or stolen something from from the outside
2: yeah um you know i I, we do such a good job scouting so i get a lot of film on a lot of teams it's it's so easy these days with huddle Mm -hmm. um you know, I, I like to stay in touch with my former assistants, you know, um, and, and, and see what they're doing. But I, lately I would say, you know, I, I'm always fascinated with uh, what Coach Hydecamp is doing at, at Bennett. I feel like he is – he always seems to be able to maximize – I feel like his style of play is very similar to teams that I've had. And so I kind of like to take a look at what they're doing. And I usually see him in the summer – and at some point I'm watching games that they've, that they'll play later. And, and ironic, I think I've only played, we've only played each other once, um, which was a long time ago. Uh, but I have a deep, deep respect for, for the job that he does. And I think he's a, he's just an absolutely brilliant uh, coach. Um, you know, the, the other, other guys that I'm, I would look at is, oh, I think wheaton Warville South is is kind of an interesting school to watch right um i, I think that uh stevenson uh pat ambrose have always had a deep respect for what he does uh he, i think he's a brilliant coach um you know and i, and I try to pay attention to other i, I might come across something uh, as the season goes along that kind of catches my interest and we'll try to study what they're doing and how they're doing it um but i would say those are probably the three guys that I, that i'm looking at most
0: well, coach, we can't we can't thank you enough. This was a, a an awesome episode. A lot of great stuff, not only basketball wise, but you know, I, I'm gonna encourage our coaches to listen to our the first quick hitter question because that was that was just a great answer about life and, and you know, um, obviously, you know, learning things from other other sources, right? A lot of times as basketball coaches, you just get focused on basketball, basketball, basketball. Um, just awesome stuff today. We can't thank you enough for joining us.
2: Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity uh, to be on here. I, I think this this is one of the, those great podcasts. I've been a big podcast fan, uh, and certainly become more so over uh, over the uh, COVID uh, situation that we li- all lived through. And uh, boy, what a great source for for coaches! And at, going back to younger head coaches, younger coaches, and young people who want to be a head coach, what a great place to go find. Uh, a a, a plethora of knowledge that will be shared from all these different head coaches. It, it, what you guys are doing is fantastic. Thank you for
1: listening to another episode of the after the timeout podcast in concert with the Illinois basketball coaches association. Please remember to give us a five-star rating wherever you may listen. For more show content and upcoming episodes, follow us on Twitter at AfterTheTimeout and subscribe to our podcast for upcoming episodes. Thank you for listening.